Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Will American soccer ever be able to develop world-class talent without a true pro-rail league in the United States? It's a comment I get frequently here on the Yank Report. The idea being that the pressures of pro-rail force a different level of competition at every level, from elite senior team starters right down to lower-level academies. And on the surface, this argument does make some sense. After all, every great soccer nation in the world features a domestic league with pro-rel. The greatest players in the history of the world were forged in pro-rel leagues. Pro-rel must have something to do with it, right? Well, it's certainly something I've thought a lot about, but it's an idea I've really struggled to find a way to truly explore. Until one day, as if sent down from the heavens, a Rosetta Stone of European player development came across my timeline, a document that serves as a roadmap to explain how the best players in the world are identified, developed, and tested. On this episode of The Yank Report, we are going deep into player development. We are going to explore how elite players become elite players. We're going to compare the developmental paths of top players to see what similarities or patterns emerge, and we're going to ask what impact ProRel had on their development. All that and more on this episode of The Yank Report. What's up, guys? My name is Sam. This is The Yank Report, a show all about the great big world of American soccer. Today, we're talking about player development. If you're into that kind of thing, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the hit, ring the bell. Do it all. Before we get started, let's take a minute to hear a word from this week's sponsor. Bet Online remains your number one source for all sports betting this season. Everything from pro and college basketball to UFC and MMA and more. Always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. With live betting options, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable, Bet Online is truly the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite leagues and events. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE to receive your rewards. BetOnline.ag, where the game starts. I think the most daunting part of this discussion is trying to work out where to start. Elite soccer players exist in all sorts of shapes and sizes and come from all over the world. And with literally thousands of soccer clubs and hundreds of leagues in existence, how do you begin to measure which clubs are more effective at developing professional soccer players than the next? Well, as luck would have it, somebody did all that work for me. The CIES Football Observatory, translated into English as the International Center for Sports Studies, is an independent research and education organization located in Switzerland. Each year, the Institute puts out numerous reports and studies on various topics in world soccer, one of which was a report on the 2021 rankings of European clubs having trained the most footballers playing in the 31 top divisions of UEFA member countries. In other words, a list ranking the best clubs in Europe at developing professional soccer players. This list is an incredible insight into which clubs in Europe are the leaders at developing players. And at first glance, things seem to be more or less in order. Ajax is sitting at the top of the list as a surprise to no one. The Dutch club has been renowned as a football factory since the days of Johan Cruyff. But upon further inspection, there are some interesting peculiarities. Real Madrid is a lot higher than I expected. A club nicknamed the Galacticos, known for their big spending rather than their development, is higher on the list than Arsenal. And PSG, the big money club in world soccer, is in the top 20. But maybe the bigger surprise is that the majority of the names in the top 20 are clubs from smaller European leagues. How are clubs like Dinamo Zagreb and FK Partizan producing more professional players than Arsenal or Barcelona? Let's take a deeper look. The clubs in the top 10 of European player development all share similar traits. From Ajax to Sparta Praha, Real Madrid to Shakhtar Donetsk, these clubs represent the giants in their respective leagues. 
they are the perennial powers that outplay, outperform, and most importantly, outspend the competition, filling up their trophy cabinets along the way. But what about promotion relegation? How does ProRail affect these clubs? Well, for the most part, it doesn't. These clubs are rarely in relegation battles. In most cases, they are able to fairly comfortably cruise to Champions League positions. Some of these clubs face battles at the top of the table, but that's about as far as interleague pressures go. It has been suggested that this lack of pressure is what allows these clubs to focus more attention, energy, and resources into player development. The mistakes that are likely to happen when playing promising, albeit young, raw prospects, are far less devastating to clubs at the top of the table with significant talent advantages than they would be for clubs at the bottom of the table, scraping for every point. Based on the clubs that produce the majority of talent, one might argue that ProRail actually inhibits player development because the consequences and mistakes and failed experiments for teams at the bottom of the table are so severe. Though I personally don't find that argument compelling because there's another side of this discussion that has a massive influence on why these clubs are able to consistently produce the best talent. It's pretty simple. They have the best prospects. We all know that top clubs are able to remain top clubs because top clubs have the money and are able to outspend their rivals on top talent. But the competition for the best talent begins long before the best talent turns professional. It's not unusual at all for big-time prospects to play for multiple youth academies as they ascend the ladder towards professionalism. This is where the top 10 clubs from the CIES index really begin to separate themselves. If you are a big-time youth prospect in Serbia, you'll likely hear from FK Partizan sooner rather than later. In Croatia, it'll probably be Dinamo Zagreb. The top clubs in each individual country serve as talent aggregators for each nation. They are able to consistently produce the best players because they start with the best prospects. Just as the universities of Alabama and Auburn compete for the top college football prospects in Alabama each year, Sporting CP and Benfica compete for the top soccer prospects in Portugal. Having the best prospects in their respective countries give these clubs a significant advantage in producing the best talent. This, of course, begs the question, what is player development? How do we define it? And who gets credit for what? Are the clubs that we consider great at player development actually developing those players? Or does their greatness lie in talent identification and recruitment? Did the three years in the Barcelona Academy develop Lionel Messi? Or did Barca pursue Messi because he was already an incredible talent? To which of Cristiano Ronaldo's three youth academies can we attribute his greatness? Do any of them deserve credit? Do all of them deserve credit? Ultimately, these are impossible questions to answer definitively. The only definitive statement I want to make is that whether we want to credit these clubs with developing talent or not, what we know for sure is that they do a damn good job of aggregating talent. And that's ultimately the point of this part of the discussion. If you happen to be one of the top youth players in your country, you are likely to end up in the academy of one of the top clubs in your country. If you are one of the top youth players in the world, you may end up at a youth academy for one of the top clubs in the world. Now, this doesn't account for all the world's elite players. There are late bloomers. Players like N'Golo Kante and Jamie Vardy are pretty obvious examples of guys who've had to work their way up from the lower divisions. But there are less obvious names like Erling Haaland, who started his career at his hometown club Bryn, a second division side in Norway, before making his way to Norwegian giant Molde. And then RB Salzburg and Borussia Dortmund, three clubs known for being top talent aggregators. 
Spanish golden boy Pedri started his career in the Spanish second division before making his jump to Barca. Robert Lewandowski hopped around a few clubs before finding his feet. Just like anything else, there are many caveats and exceptions. But when you begin to look at the developmental history of the top players in the world, it's astounding how many of these players have moved from top of the table club to top of the table club as they climbed the European soccer ladder. Messi, for instance, went from Barcelona to PSG. Cristiano Ronaldo, in his prime, went from Sporting CP to Man U to Madrid. Vinicius Jr. went from Flamengo to Real Madrid. Mbappe from Monaco to PSG. Neymar from Santos to Barca to PSG. Joshua Kimmich from RB Leipzig to Munich. Raheem Sterling went from Liverpool to Man City to Chelsea. Bakayo Saka went straight to Arsenal. Mason Mount went straight to Chelsea. Thomas Mueller went straight to Bayern Munich. Marcus Rashford went straight to Man U. Phil Foden went straight to Man City. Trent Alexander-Arnold went straight to Liverpool. The point here being that while some of the top players in the world had to work their way up from the bottom, many of the world's very best players have not. Many of the world's absolute best soccer players have never been in a relegation battle. Many of the world's very best players have never been in a promotion playoff. For some of these players, they've never had to worry about making the Champions League. This is not to say that playing at a top club is easy. There's constant pressure and scrutiny. The fans are ruthless. The media is relentless. And the only constant is the demand for excellence. Top prospects are routinely being brought into the squad and the competition for minutes is fierce. It is certainly not easy to play at a big club. But that's not the point of the discussion. The question is whether or not ProRail is necessary to produce top players. And I think we've seen rather unequivocally that a player does not have to compete in a relegation battle to become a top player. We've also seen through the CIES data that the clubs who are the best in Europe at producing professional soccer players tend to be the clubs at the top of their respective tables as opposed to the clubs at the bottoms of their respective tables. So if the European clubs who are engaged in pro-rel battles are not the ones producing the most talent, and if many of the most talented players have never participated in pro-rail battles, I think it's reasonable to ask, what is the basis of our discussion here? Is it solely that the top players play in leagues that feature pro-rail, regardless of whether or not those players are active participants in pro-rail battles? Is the suggestion that regardless of whether or not a player actively participates in a pro-rail battle or not, simply being in a pro-rail ecosystem will have down-the-line impacts on their development? As these questions become more and more ambiguous, they in turn get harder and harder to test. Lucky for us, there is a control group out there that's at least providing us some food for thought. MLS over in the US and Canada is a professional soccer league built around a closed system rather than promotion relegation. And while it'd be virtually impossible to truly compare development between MLS and Europe, what I can say with absolute certainty is that in its less than 30 year history, MLS has produced at least one world-class player. Alfonso Davies, the Canadian left back for Bayern Munich, is arguably the best left back in the world. After moving to Canada at five years old, Davies trained with some academies in Edmonton before he entered the Vancouver Whitecaps Academy at 14 years old. He quickly reached the Vancouver senior team before eventually finding his way to Bayern Munich. Now, as with everything else in player development, we can argue about who really deserves credit for developing Alfonso Davies. Was it the Vancouver Whitecaps? Was it his six games for Bayern Munich 2? Was it the years he spent in Liberia before immigrating to Canada at five years old? 
Who really knows? The bottom line is that Davies proves that it is possible for a player to begin their career in a non-pro rel environment and still go on to become one of the best players in the world. That pro rel is not necessary, at least at the early stages, to produce one of the best players in the world. Does that mean we're out of the woods on this one? No, of course not. This is player development. The argument is never over. One could still argue that while Alfonso Davies is now a world-class player, he was not a world-class player while in MLS, that he needed the pro-rail environment of Bayern Munich to reach his full potential. Now, I think calling Bayern Munich a pro-rail environment is a bit of a stretch, but still, it would be hard to refute this argument until MLS produces a world-class player from its academies that is a world-class player while still in MLS. And because of the global soccer economic structures, that probably isn't going to happen anytime soon. That player will most likely be transferred before they reach their peak. One could also argue that while MLS has produced one world-class player in Alfonso Davies, the pro-rail structure is still more efficient at producing world-class players than a single entity system. Therefore, the U.S. will still be at a developmental disadvantage compared to the rest of the world. Ultimately, I don't find any of these arguments compelling because... I have a hard time finding the connection between league structure and player development. What do I find compelling? In the 2009 book, The Talent Code, author Daniel Coyle explores the neurology behind skill acquisition. Coyle visits a variety of what he calls talent hotbeds around the world in order to find out the secrets behind talent development in multiple disciplines such as sports, music, and arts. In the end, Coyle develops what he referred to as the three elements of the talent code. Deep practice, ignition, another word for motivation, and master coaching. For my money, these are the three ingredients necessary to develop world-class players. No secret sauce, no romantic cultural implications or specific league structures. The player must be motivated, the player must be well-coached, and the player must engage in consistent, deep practice. Now, to be fair, the top European academies do a great job of executing on these core developmental principles. Because the top prospects end up at the top clubs in their respective countries, it allows resources to be centralized. The top clubs can hire the top developmental coaches to ensure the highest quality of instruction, and the centralization of top prospects ensures that the players will routinely be training against high-quality competition. In the United States, on the other hand, the sheer size of the country makes centralization a bit less feasible. Some players will inherently be disadvantaged based on where they live. And even if the player has the willingness and resources to move, territorial restrictions in MLS can limit academy player movement, though these restrictions are lessening. The question becomes, would a pro-rail system in the United States lessen the logistical issues for player development? For me, it's a bit of a stretch. As we've seen with pro-rail around the world, the lease structure tends to create haves and have-nots, which would potentially further centralize resources in the United States and make access to top coaches and training environments even more difficult. Now, the latest trend in European player development seems to be an even more extreme centralized approach. In 1988, the French Football Federation opened the INF Clairefontaine Academy in the suburbs of Paris. The academy serves 13 to 15-year-old prospects and is completely subsidized by the French Federation. With the success of the French national team and notable alumni like Thierry Henry, Nicolas Anelka, and Kylian Mbappe, Claire Fontaine has become the model for youth academies in international soccer. But what really separates Claire Fontaine from tradition is that the academy does not exist within a pro-rail system. It doesn't really exist within any competitive system. Participants simply train at the academy and are released on the weekends to play games with their parent club. 
The success of Clairefontaine has seen copycat academies emerge in various other European nations, including St. George's Park outside of London. It should be noted that U.S. soccer has actually tried the centralized approach before. From 1999 to 2017, U.S. soccer offered a residency program in Bradenton, Florida at the IMG Academy. The original idea of the residency program was to give elite players the opportunity to train in a professional environment, as most MLS clubs did not have substantial youth academy systems in place prior to 2009. The IMG Academy produced many of the biggest names in U.S. men's national team history, including Landon Donovan, Josie Outdoor, Michael Bradley, and many others. The residency program was eventually disbanded in favor of the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, a more robust network of developmental academies across the country. The DA network was less centralized than the IMG Academy, which in turn allowed more players access to the academies. Players like Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Chris Richards, and Gio Reyna all spent time within U.S. Soccer Development Academy clubs. The DA eventually folded into the MLS Next program. Whether or not the MLS Next program will maintain the momentum started by the USSDA remains to be seen. And with the success of Clairefontaine, it will be interesting to see if similar U.S. soccer subsidized academies will reemerge in the United States, though the solutions that exist in population-dense countries in Europe are hard to replicate in the vastness of the United States. One major obstacle these American development academies are attempting to overcome is pay-to-play. Pay-to-play is the term used to describe a system in which participants must pay money to play the sport. In the U.S., these fees to play can quickly stack up to the point where some parents simply cannot afford for their child to progress in the sport. Soccer academies have come a long way in the last decade in overcoming pay-to-play. To date, I can confirm all but one MLS academies are free participants and many of the high-level soccer academies across the country offer scholarships and financial aid. However, these academies are often unavailable for kids until they're teenagers, and the competition for these academy positions are fierce. So parents must still bridge the financial gap before their children reach an academy-eligible age. This is an ongoing issue in American soccer, though the characterization of pay-to-play as purely an American issue is a bit overblown. There are instances in other countries where kids have to pay-to-play, Even traditional soccer countries deal with pay-to-play. The parents of Brazilian national team star Vinicius Jr. needed for fees to be waived at his first soccer school in Brazil because his family cannot afford the tuition costs. For players like Vinny Jr., benefactors recognizing the enormous potential of the young players often emerge in these situations to help lessen the financial burdens in hopes to recoup some of the investment on the back end when the young prospect turns into professional. Now, With all that being said, are we any closer to understanding player development? It seems the deeper we go into exploring player development, the more mysterious it becomes. And for me, that's the true secret of it all. The real secret is that there is no secret. Nobody knows how to reliably develop a Messi or a Ronaldo every two years. If anybody could, they would. Barcelona, with their vast resources and global scouting network, have struggled to replicate their developmental output during their tiki-taka era when they seemingly had it all figured out. Brazil, the best nation in the world at player development, have not produced a Ballon d'Or winner since Kaka in 2007. Just like the game itself, player development is an inexact science, unpredictable in nature. So going back to our original question, will American soccer ever be able to develop world-class talent without a true pro-rail league in the United States? And honestly, I don't think it matters. I don't think player development works that way. The best clubs in Europe at developing professionals are largely unaffected by pro-rail. 
Some of the best players in the world have never been in a relegation battle. Arguably the best left back in the world was producing a non-pro rel system. And the current gold standard model for teenage player development operates outside of pro rel. Therefore, I don't think that a league system has a significant impact on player development. What does have a significant impact on player development? Deep practice against high-level competition, high-level coaching, and incredible individual motivation. If these factors exist, high-level skill acquisition will follow. Whether or not the U.S. can consistently pull that off remains to be seen. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Please let me know your feedback in the comments section. Did you learn anything new in this video that you weren't aware of? If you would like the Yank Report and Podcast form, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. Just look for the Yank Report Podcast. Follow me on Twitter, like the channel, subscribe. If you really want to support the channel, you can take that next step and directly support me by becoming a member. Thank you to all the tier two members, Manuel Oliveras, Matthew Doyle, Matthew Hanna, Michael Baker, Dan McVeigh, Mike Irish, Aaron M., 427 Motorsports LLC and expats everywhere. Guys, thank you so much for watching. My name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.